0: Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to WeAreSYA.com. Here we go. Um, influence for part two. Um, Last week we talked about, well, I think I had the opportunity to say what I try to say as much as I can possibly say, which is leadership is influence, but character is everything. You didn't say it as as excited as I hoped you might, but that's probably good for my ego. So character, uh, yeah, character is everything. Last week, Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, it's a great passage Um, from the words of Jesus, and basically, I'm going to summarize, it's a lot of verses, right? And he he says that if you want to be great, you need to serve other people through sacrificial love. So, you you know, greatness, influence, leadership, however you want to look at it. And last week, we looked at Jesus' first temptation by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, and we said at least part of that first temptation was for Jesus to be relevant. I want to show you a second temptation tonight. And it's this temptation to do something spectacular. Let me read it to you. It's from Matthew chapter four also, but it's the second temptation. It's found in verse four. It says, then the tempter, Satan, took Jesus up to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, jump off. And then the devil says, the scriptures say, now whole other sermon here, If Satan knows scripture that well to be able to quote it, maybe you and I as followers of Jesus should too. But he says, scripture says, Jesus, God will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Now, there was a prophetic expectation among the Jewish people that the Messiah would be seen you know, when the Messiah comes, he'll be seen up high on the temple, and he'll do something spectacular. So, part of what Satan was doing was saying, "Look, man, the people want it; just give it to him." Jesus, like you know, it's, it's not really in the Bible; right? it's not really in the in the in among the prophets. But there's this expectation among the people. See, so you ought to just do it. Do be spectacular. Now, Jesus would indeed be lifted high, but you know how the story goes. It was on a bloody cross, not through some spectacular display. And the religious leaders would often, I don't know, dare Jesus, uh, ask him to give them a sign, do a miracle. Let us know that you're really who you say you are. And Jesus, usually with the, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he wouldn't do it, and he would often throw them a little riddle right? And that's, I think that's how he did it. He'd talk like that. He'd give him a riddle. And when he would do a miracle on his own terms, not because they asked him to, he would often tell the people around, "Hey, hey, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody that I did this miracle, right? Because the miracle was about faith, not about his fame, So Jesus's temptation from Satan here in Matthew 4, it wasn't really to do a miracle. It was to be spectacular for everyone else to see. And listen, you are tempted in that way. So am I. This desire to do and say amazing things with the motive that other people will praise us for it. And this desire to be spectacular, it leaks out. In several ways, and this is what I want to break down. it leaks out in how we talk, how we present, and how we hide in how we talk. those who want to be spectacular often jockey to the front and center of conversations. usually, with a story that tops others, I would say, "Do you know people like this, but we 've probably all been people like this at some point, a story that tops everyone else's even If that means, here's one of the temptations, within the temptation, even if that means I have to exaggerate, so my story gets top shelf attention. And exaggerating, if you pay attention to that in your life, exaggeration is a leak that you aren't at peace with who you really are, right? That's why you're telling a story magnified beyond how it actually happened. Because you're not at, it's not so much that you're not at peace with how it actually happened, you're not at peace with who you actually are. So if you struggle with an immature desire for influence through being seen as more spectacular than you are, then you've probably noticed that you've become impatient with small talk, especially if you're into spectacular spiritual leadership and influence get kind of put out by small talk. You're eager to talk about the epic and the spectacular and the spiritual, right? The spirit, you know, the the stuff that really matters. But small talk, the stuff within small talk really matters. It's not insignificant because that's what makes up the majority of your life and mine too. Like what happened at work today? And like, you know, your your shopping list that you had and then you get to the grocery store and you left it at home. Like that's the stuff that, maybe that doesn't happen very much because most of you probably do it on your phone as I do, but my wife still makes physical lists on paper because she's awesome. Um, Or like what you watched on TV last night or your laundry or whatever. Real life is not a continual series of epic experiences. And those who think that are either immature or naive, and maybe if they're naive, it probably means, or maybe I should be personal, if you're naive, it probably means that you have even subconsciously bought into the idea that social media is real. Like I don't mean that social media is real, that, so, that the stuff on social media is real and not exaggerated. So, if you struggle with the desire for every experience to be spectac- spectacular, do this. Pray for wisdom, but specifically for a vision to see life as God made it. And then ask for help to be content in your life as it actually is. And if you struggle with the desire for every conversation to be spectacular, Well, then my advice would be to practice James chapter one, verse 19. You know this one's pretty popular. James says, be slow to speak, quick to listen, And therefore, you'll be slow to become angry. Here's something you can try. In the classic 80s movie about a basketball team in the 50s, it's called Hoosiers. And Gene Hackman was the coach in the movie, and he has this rule when he starts coaching this high school team. They have to pass the ball four times before anybody can take a shot. And you can try that in a conversation. If you struggle to be spectacular in your words and how you talk, all the time, you can decide I'm going to not share anything until I've asked at least four questions and I've listened well. Now, some of you are already really good at asking questions, but many of you that want to be spectacular in how you talk beyond how or who you actually are could probably use a little bit of that. Four questions, listen well before you share. The desire to be spectacular also comes out in how we present, like how we dress or how we post. There's other things, but much of that, you know, dressing and posting, much of that is just beautiful, like, self-expression. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a wonderful thing. Just don't lose your soul by presenting to be somebody that you actually are not. Now, I've talked to exhausted young adults who are feverishly trying to, like, keep up with what is out there virtually or as they perceive it in real life. But it's not so much that they're trying to keep up with other people. They're trying to keep up with their own presentation of life, whether in the flesh or virtually because that's what's exhausting. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, Jesus says to the religious, he says, you hypocrites, You are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. And he he later ends up saying, if you clean out the inside, the outside will take care of itself. There's this term cognitive dissonance. It's the idea, well, here's the definition. It's the state of discomfort when two or more modes of thought contradict each other or the anxiety that it results from simultaneously holding Contradictory or otherwise incompatible attitudes and beliefs. A lot of big words, right? Like this. Like you tell a lie. And then you really struggle with it at night. Not because necessarily of your conscience. But because you had this vision in your mind of you being an honest person. And and sometimes that, that sometimes that can, that cognitive dissonance can be subconscious because you've decided you've projected that you are an honest person, but you lie, right? And maybe not just that one time. Cognitive dissonance, and when you consistently present a version of yourself that isn't anywhere near whole then spiritual dissonance will eat away at your thoughts and your soul. Now, there's no one thing to remedy this, but I would say paying attention and naming it, naming yours is a good start. Here's some examples. Maybe you belittle a friend, right? You You have a group of friends and then you have this one friend and you kind of belittle him or her, or you kind of try to overshadow, maybe that's kind of the jockeying, you know? Like, I'm a guy, so let me use a guy example, right? And who knows, this might end up right into some of your hearts or souls. But like, you know, you get a group of guys, a group of girls, you all hang out, you know. And, you know, this one guy, he tells stories and he kind of gets attention sometimes and the girls seem to laugh and like it. And And he starts telling a story. And, you know, you don't do this physically, but like like conversationally and emotionally, you're kind of like, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. And you tell your story. Kind of overshadow him to get attention in a certain way. Or social media. You see a deeply complex and nuanced issue. Not that any of you have ever done this. But without any real deep thought, you post and position yourself in that post that projects a lot of confidence, hoping for praise. And there it is. Hoping to be seen as on the right side. Or in your storytelling, you exaggerate. We talked about this, or you doctor up a story so that you get seen a certain way, whether by your real world people in the flesh or virtually. Now, remedy, you can fast from social media, you can not hang out with uh, these people or these people, but you see the problem already, right? The problem is not out there in the social media world or in here where you often jockey to get attention, the problem is in here. So paying attention and naming it is a solid start. And finally, the desire to be spectacular comes out in how we hide, and how we hide. When we um, offer distortions of our true selves through how we talk and how we present, Here's what happens, and I've, I've hinted at this already. We then feel the pressure, the exhaustion to maintain that parody of ourselves. In other words, we hide because deep down we fear that the real us is not as stunning at, as this caricature that we've kind of created and presented. Jesus said in Luke chapter six, verse 26, oh my goodness, you ready? This is like a punch in the gut spiritually. Beware when everyone praises you. That's how people of old would speak of the false prophets or spectacular liars. I started thinking that maybe those prophets and people became false prophets and spectacular liars because they inflated the praise of others. And I want you to think with me here because I don't think it's so much that there's a thin line between who you really are and how you are perceived. I do think there's a thin line there, but I don't think that's the problem. I think instead it's more like a thin line between who you really are and who, there's a thin line between who you really are and how you think other people perceive you. Because isn't that true, right? Like, not just that statement, but like, there's how I think you perceive me and, and then there's how you perceive me. <laughs> like, that's just kind of reality. I'm not saying that we don't ever get any of it right. But you, you, you were working that out in middle school and high school. So was I. So you're, you're further along now that you've at least figured out that that perception is a thin line. Or how you think of the perception. The danger isn't that we are praised by other people. The danger is in how we hear the praise, how we interpret it, how we filter it, like magnifying it beyond what that person even meant when they praised us. Or even worse, is our attempt to morph into that magnified interpretation of their praise or my perception of your praise, like you praise me. And then I, what I hear and how I interpret it, I like morph into that's who I am. So I've been a pastor here for 16 years, was at one other church for eight. More than once here, I've been told something like, wow, you're a really good leader. You've always had like really awesome people on your teams. How'd you get to be such a good leader? Let me read Jesus again. beware when everyone praises you. I don't know if he said it like that, but part of the psychology behind his warning is to not assume that their praise is actually about your greatness or about you at all. I mean, often when people praise you, it's simply that they want something from you, even if, even if it's your attention. And we do that subconsciously, all of us. Like, I mean, this is like the easiest example because it's one of the most extreme, right? But like you see a celebrity and I'm not talking about the one that you follow on Instagram because you, you, like you love them, right? But a celebrity and you have a chance to be around. them. I'm not saying everybody does this, but some people do, a lot of people do. And they, you know, if they get to talk to them, they say great things about them. Never met them. They don't know what their character's like, but they say great things, right? Because ultimate, but it's probably not really about the celebrity, It's about the person giving the praise because they want the attention from the celebrity. And something similar works in, you know, normal folks like us, our lives. And even if the person praising you, if their motives are pure, their perception about you is rarely accurate. I don't care how big their praise is of you. And my friends, listen, if you can get your arms around that truth, I mean, really, not, not like, uh, you know, just giving it some, some, some word affirmation when you're with your friends, because a lot of times that's just jockeying and virtue signaling anyway, I mean, in your heart and your soul, if you can get your arms around that, man, you're on your way to actual self-awareness that their perception about you is rarely accurate. So what allows you to hear their praises and filter it through reality is what Paul calls sober judgment in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, or a more modern psychological term, self-awareness. Allow me to practice it here with the illustration I used earlier. So I've been here a long time, right? like 16 years long. I've had 20, more than 25 people serving directly under my leadership here in the past 16 years. Um, I've been involved in big moments in many of their lives and those 25 plus people, um, I've prayed over them, I've challenged them the way I'd wanna be challenged or at least tried. I've built them up when they've struggled. I've loved them as best as I can. And I've also tried not to hide. And here's what that means. What that means is is that if I'm actually not hiding, then they are actually seeing me. And if, you you know, because when you hide, people can't see you, at least theoretically, but if you're not hiding, they can see you. And if these people who've worked with me can actually see me, it means they've been annoyed by me and disappointed in me, let down by me. My point, those who've asked, what is it about you that makes you a good leader because you've always had such great people around you. Part of it is they've heard things, that person saying that has heard things about me from those people I just talked about, who I've tried to love well, right? Tried to just be real and genuine and not hide. Now, I'm not saying that Adrian or Jeff or Derek or Monet or, or people from 5, 10, 15 years ago, I'm not saying they're lying about me. That's not true. They don't have bad character. I'm just saying that when you've been around as long as I've been around, and, and as long as you're not like a total loser, which I would hope I'm not a total loser, I don't, some loser, but not total, then inevitably some nice things are gonna be said and even exaggerated about you, about me. But there's temptation to hide, right? And to inflate and embody the praise that we're given. So the work is sober, sober judgment, but also this. Sober judgment, but then a desire to please God overall. And I'm not just talking about like giving that some, you know, yeah, I just want to please God overall. Well, let me read from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, We speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, the good news. He says, Our purpose is to please God, not people. God alone examines the motives of the heart. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know, and God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only the gospel, but our very lives as well. To ultimately desire God's approval most you must come out from hiding. Practically, in your life, learning to live whole and honest in how you talk and how you present yourself. Otherwise, you're gonna exhaust yourself trying to maintain that parity of yourself. Maybe we can call it what it is, that lie. That when you're presenting in a way that you are not, well, that's another way of calling it a lie. Jesus in Luke chapter nine, some of his most important words because this phrase and the context that it's in, it's the phrase he repeats more often in the gospel than any other phrase. Luke chapter nine, 23, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life or your way for my way, you'll find it. In other words, Jesus would say, be done pretending, take my hand and walk this way, like my way. So here's how I wanna end. I wanna give you two disciplines, action steps, to help starve that insecure desire to be spectacular, to help you lead, serve, and influence from an honest and genuine soul, okay? Discipline number one, confess your reality, Now, this isn't simply confessing your sin to God. That's good, though. But you're confessing your actual reality to yourself. God already knows. It's admitting who you actually are, not who you want to be seen as. Because to live in reality, you have to first admit that it exists. The temptation here will be false humility and even self-hatred, but those are just extreme attempts to hide, to pretend. Confessing reality instead is tough self-love, but it sets us free to actually influence other people with a whole heart, an undivided heart. The religious liar always says, I love God always and the most. I'm going to say that phrase again, because I thought this one through. I mean, I'm not saying that makes me right. I'm just saying I thought it through that I wanted to say it this way because I at least at this moment in my life believe this to be true. The religious liar always says, I love God always and always most. But the disciple of Jesus, who's living in honesty, prays something like the prayer of St. Teresa of Avila, who said, oh God, I don't, even love you I don't even want to love you but I want to want to love you it's been my uh, consistent prayer for almost 25 years before preaching anywhere something like God what I really want most is to woo and wow people in such a way that they think I'm smart and great so please give me the power to preach your gospel and not mine Give me the humility to know that I need it more than anybody I'm preaching to, and give me love to see the actual people that I'm getting to preach to. Something like that. Confessing your reality flusters your ego, but it frees your soul. Besides, admitting your reality is the only sane thing to do, everything else is just pretending, it's projecting. The kingdom is reality and liars live with delusions of spectacular grandeur. The kingdom has room for everybody. But if you can't see because you have blinders on and you're hiding, then you'll likely walk right past God's kingdom way again and again. But you get to choose. That is the good news. You get to choose to pretend or to step out into freedom in Jesus. And as my 12-year-old Silas used to say when he was little, dad, I'm so glad God didn't make us robots or a puppet because I like being free. Amen, side dog. I do too. And I know you do. We all do. You, you and I weren't meant to be a puppet. And Jesus's kingdom way offers freedom and confessing your reality, naming it, like saying it like this is, this, here's, who I, I wa- here's how I want others to see me. But here's, Here's what I'm made of right now. Like doing that, that's a first step toward cutting the strings of being like a puppet. And discipline number two, to help starve an insecure desire to be spectacular is practice gratitude from within your reality that you've already confessed as being what's real about you right now. So when you strive to be seen as more spectacular than you are, the tragedy is that you will rarely be thankful for who you actually are, for where you're actually at, where you've actually been and the people you're with now. When you're presenting a a false caricature of yourself, it'll be hard to be thankful for it all because you know deep down it's pretend. Without gratitude, Grass is always greener on the other side. But you already probably know this quote wherever it comes from. The grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. And gratitude is what waters your life. Gratitude is a verb. It's something you do. It can spring up spontaneously. And this is often how gratitude happens. Sometimes it can surprise you. But gratitude, and this is what scripture teaches. Uh, Let me work up to it. Like gratitude can also be like a muscle. You can stretch it. You can grow that muscle and learn to use it if you pay attention. Let me tell you a story. I, was, I, I told you I was a youth pastor in Missouri for eight years and uh, we would take high school students to Mexico one to two times a year. We'd drive 15 hours from where we were in Missouri to Texas, stay the night on the border, and then drive another seven to eight hours down into Saltillo, Mexico. We served in the poorest villages of that area. We played with kids, we worshiped, we mixed concrete, did construction projects, worked really long days. And we did these trips a couple times a year for the eight years I was there. We eventually took more students on these mission trips than we did to summer camp. It became like the DNA of the entire church. And by the way, Amy and I were like 22 when we began doing this, like taking high school kids all those hours away. Those parents were crazy. And at the end of those 10 to 15 day trips, we'd drive up out of Mexico. We'd stay the night on the border in Del Rio, Texas, across from Acuna, Mexico, on the border. And we'd we'd get there late morning and spend the rest of the day cliff diving. It was like a hundred, I have old videos, they're really grainy too, because this is like, you know, 98 to 2005. And there were a hundred foot cliffs and we, it was again, and the parents knew about this and they let their kids go. Just amazing, right? On those last nights before heading home in the morning there in Texas, we'd, we'd sit outside the campgrounds and we'd worship. And almost like a guided meditation, I'd ask them to think through this last 10, 12 days in Mexico, to consider the difficulties and heartbreaks, the pain, the poverty but also the beauty and the hard work and the grace that we'd experienced, the friendships. And then I'd simply ask them to allow all of that to wash over all of us. And then I'd say, when you're ready, just express, express it. Now, during the week, we we'd do Bible studies and worship time every night. And one of the Bible study methods I do is we you know I'd always read through a, a one or if we did small letters a couple of books of the Bible we'd just read through it and you know cuz I don't I don't want to be sitting creating curriculum on a mission trip I want to be there so one of the, and this is just a gr- really great Bible study method by the way we just read and we'd all get together okay chapter 1 in Colossians today and then that night I'd say hey tell me something that made you go wow or something that made you go thanks And then other times, things that make you go, huh? But I would say when we were out among the stars that last night before driving home, just express your gratitude for the Lord. And pitch dark other than the stars and 20 to 30 teenagers, totally silent for several minutes until eventually I'd hear sniffing. There'd be these tears of joy and sadness all mixed in. And then I'd hear whispers, thank you to the Lord. And then others that would say, Wow. Right? Because they're just practicing this like thing we'd been doing. I'd let this go on for a while in the dark until finally saying, Amen. Remember this. I'll see you in the morning. Then we go to our cabins. And gratitude can be spontaneous, but it's also a muscle. And that's what I was trying to teach these kids. That when you struggle, when you collaborate when you do work that matters, you know, like when you live together with people for that long I and mean, people from all, and then we take adult trips too. And I already knew this instinctively. It's why I never wanted to work with adults, like, you know, older adults, right? Because are worse than kids. And then I, then I had that like instinct that I assumed, like confirmed the first time I led an adult mission trip. And I kept doing it because I loved it, but oh my word, they complained way more than high school kids. Right? And they wanted to know everything. Like, I always used to get so annoyed. High school kids asked me, What time are we going to talk about? They always wanted to know. They wanted to know. You know, they wanted to know. Adults, though, are used to being in control in their life. Now they got this 24 year old punk, right? Who had like real long hair, little earrings at the time. I didn't talk like that, but it was just, it felt like that, that's where I was right now in that moment of caricature. And anyway, when you struggle, when you collaborate, when you have to listen to whining, when you have to like put up with other people, when you get seen and you come out from hiding and people see you, and you go through all of that together, and then you're still long enough to examine it and hold on to it, well, here's what happens, and this is the practice. Gratitude rises up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Verses 16 through 18. This is how the Bible teaches this. Actually, it commands gratitude. It says, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for my life? That's like a religious cowbell, like clanking over and over and over. Clank, clank, I should have got a cowbell. That'd have been a good one, right? Clank, every religious service, clank, right? Every, and I know, I'm, listen, I've done it too. Clank, what is, what's God's will for my life? Now, I think what we usually mean by that is God, tell me what to do, tell me how to choose. But God made image-bearing partners, not Puppets. And so God's more interested in your decision-making process as it builds your character than he is the decision itself. 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse 21. We read 16, 17, and 18. Here's 21. Examine everything. And then hold on to what is good. Gratitude chooses to find the good and the grace in the midst of it all without being naive, or without over-spiritualizing everything. Meister Eckhart wrote that if the only prayer you ever said was thank you, it would be enough. Now, it is easy to think or say that like, people that are super grateful, and uh, praise team, you guys can come on up. I'm landing it. That was me landing it. It's easy to think that like people who are super grateful, super full of joy, the temptation, if you're not practicing gratitude and joy, the temptation is to say, they're just super blessed and therefore became really joyful and grateful because of how much, but but come on. You know better than that because you see it all the time. All of us either, some of you have this story, but others of you know these people who have lived through horrendous lives, have had injustice and things that are just completely unfair happen to them time and again and they are the most joyful, gratitude-filled people that you know. Now, I also know that we know people, I do, that have had those terrible things happen and they are spiteful, vindicative, angry. But the truth is, it's not people that have just been like randomly blessed by God that are the most joyful. I mean, to think of it like that, it's kind of like saying the people who are spoiled by God, right, they got to be born a certain way and therefore spoiled, pay attention. Spoiled people don't tend to be overly joyful and grateful. So, the truth seems to be that if they, if they confess their reality, their perspective, they have perspective, and then they practice gratitude. That's probably why they're so joy-filled and grateful. One more quote and then a blessing, and then we'll respond to all of this and and probably so much more because the Spirit
1: always has
0: way more than I could ever conjure up. Thomas Merton, the the great writer, said, to be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything he has given us, and he has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love. Every moment of existence is a grace, for it brings with it immense graces from him. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted, is never unresponsive, is constantly awakening to new wonder and to praise of the goodness of God. For the grateful person knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. And that is what makes all the difference. So I'm going to ask you to stand if you are able and would like to. And as we prepare to to sing and to respond to the great love of God, I want to bless you by saying, may you come out of hiding if indeed that's where you are in your soul right now, revealing any broken desires to be Spectacular or seen that way. May you confess your reality to yourself and to your creator. Maybe those first steps are during this song. And as you find forgiveness and grace in those confessions, may gratitude rise up for all that's been and for all that is. And as you serve and influence and lead and love in the name of Jesus, may you know that God is for you, and that God loves you as you actually are, not as you're pretending to be. And in that, may you find grace and peace to move further and further out of hiding into the wonderful way of Jesus. Lord, would you bless us? Spirit of God, would you Would you help us to practice in these moments gratitude? May we allow it to wash over us, all of it. May we examine our lives and all that has come before, and all that is in front of us, and all that is within us. And much of it, certainly for me, and I'm sure for my friends here, there is plenty that is not fully honest. So Lord, as we as we sing and as we pray and as we confess and move toward you through your spirit, I pray for your grace even now. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at WeAreSYA.